0: Those of you who've been uh, with us from the beginning as we began our journey some months ago through Paul's letter to 2 Corinthians, his most personal uh, letter, you might remember uh, how he started off in 2 Corinthians 1 3 through 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This repeated refrain here of comfort, 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 comfort uh, comes back to us again in our passage today. Uh, The fact is that Paul wrote this letter in a sense in a state of depression. He was discouraged, he was overwhelmed, he was... uh, 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 upset about the Corinthians, and uh, he had written a very stern letter uh, rebuking them for some of their actions, and he was waiting for a response. And uh, he, Titus was to bring that response, and he had not been able to find Titus at this point in time. Second Corinthians 2, 4 and 13 says this, for out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears, not so that uh, you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you, I had no rest of my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. but here today, in this wonderful passage, beginning in second uh, Corinthians chapter seven verse five, we have a transition mark. What we see in today 's passage is t- is Titus has come and he 's given wonderful news about the the, the repentance of the Corinthians, and the love uh, that they have towards the Apostle Paul and therefore towards the genuine gospel. Uh, so you see a real transition point here. And uh, God, the refra- refraining within this, uh, this particular passage, the principal uh, note that Paul wants to express is that God is the one who comforts the depressed. So what we want to do as we journey through this passage of 2 Corinthians 7, 5-16 is just to know that in our afflictions and our anguishes, anguishing of heart and our depression of spirit, we have a God. Who will comfort us? Let's go to the Lord in prayer and unpack this marvelous passage, this marvelous personal passage uh, where we learn about the Apostle Paul's ministry, but also uh, can enjoy some application in some of the struggles that we have in this life. Father, in faith, we turn to you right now and just recognizing, God, that we are an emotional people, uh, we are uh, subject to fits of discouragement and depression. Uh, we, uh, we know some of that is our own fault. We know some of it is not. And the solutions that the world offers sometimes seem to make things worse. So I pray, God, in faith that you would just help us, especially for those who tend to deal with depression and discouragement, uh, to be overwhelmed with uh, difficulties of life. I pray that we would take comfort that, that literally the Apostle Paul, probably the greatest Christian that ever existed struggled with the same. So let us go to school on the Apostle Paul. Let us learn from Corinthians. Let us see how you used others uh, in this ministry of comfort. And let us bless the God who comforts the depressed. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You'll be assisted as we go through this passage. It's somewhat of a lengthy passage here, uh, some 11 verses. Uh, if you look at your home group's helps insert, you'll see the breakdown of the passage. You see here that the uh, first verse we see a conflict and misery. Paul kind of defines what's going on. And then we see comfort through others in verses 6 through 7, and comfort through the Corinthians verses 8 through 13a, and comfort for the sake of others, for 13b through 16. First of all, we see here the conflict of misery of verse 5. God says, Paul writes, for even when we came to Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side conflicts without fears within. Have you ever been depressed? Uh, If you have been, uh, you're in good company. Statistically speaking, something like 20% of the adult population in the United States uh, is depressed or suffers with depression. And it's interesting, it kind of depends on what state you live in and on about how severe that might be. Uh, It can be anywhere from 13% to 29%. West Virginia is the highest in depression rate. And believe it or not, Hawaii is the lowest. That is not a shocking statistic to me. South Carolina is literally in the middle. We are 25, okay? So we have aspects of both West Virginia and Hawaii. We're sort of like the Hawaiian West Virginia, if you think about it. And uh, so we kind of in the middle ground there, but at least 20% of the adult population is, is depressed. So you're in good company, but you're also in good company. And this fact, the Apostle Paul was depressed at times. The Apostle Paul was depressed at times, and you see this, you can see the difficulties he's talking about. Again, this, this incredibly personal letter where Paul has to defend his ministry against the false teachers. In 2 Corinthians 4, he, uh, he said this, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, and not destroyed. I mean, these are emotional words. He's not some kind of just a, a, a marble saint up there for everybody to behold what a great example he is. He is flesh and blood, and he deals with flesh and blood, emotional issues of life. Second Corinthians chapter six, beginning verse four. Paul was commending ourselves a servant of God in much endurance and inflictions, hardships and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labor and sleekness and hunger and purity and knowledge and patience and kindness of the Holy Spirit. Evil report, good report, poor, and yet making many rich, etc. He'll go on in chapter eleven to say this: that they were servants, that and they are servants of Christ, and he far more so, and far more in labors, in imprisonments, beating times without number. He literally cannot remember how many times he's been beaten. Often the danger of death, five times he received from the Jews, 39 lashes. Three times he was beaten with rods, once he was stoned. Three times he was shipwrecked, floating in the sea night and day. And yet, of all the things that he struggled, all of the beatings, the imprisonments, the difficulties, probably it was his role as a pastor that caused him the greatest depression. 2 Corinthians 11 closes with this, There is the daily pressure on me of concern for the churches. Who is weak without without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? The average tenure of a pastor is less than four years. And this is one of the reasons, because they feel the difficulty of the church in so many ways. Kent Hughes says this, there was never a time when someone was not happy with him or maligning him. Let me uh, just kind of, because we're talking about Paul, Paul has uh, been expressing the difficulties he's going through and he's opened his heart for the Corinthians. And just give you kind of a sense for really anybody in ministry, any Christian, but in particular for pastors, three types of depressors for the shepherd, okay? Three types of depressors. Pastor is a word for shepherd. First of all, wolves, right? The wolves are in the world. Uh, the world hates the church. Uh, the pastor is the head of the church. Therefore, the world hates the pastor. And you see this. You see this uh, in church history. Uh, the pastor is always, uh, often the, one, the first one to be persecuted, uh, martyred, and that sort of thing. So the wolves. But the thing with the wolves is they're out there. And we, we sort of expect that. But then there's wolves in sheep's clothing. That's when the world is acting like the church. They pretend to be part of the flock, but they're really not. And that's really what Paul was dealing with here in Corinth, wasn't it? These false teachers who come in, and they were actually wolves, but they're wearing sheep's clothing. They they looked pious. They they had an appearance of Christianity, but they were bringing in this kind of syncretistic Christian-Jewish philosophical Greek philosophical background. But I'd be honest with you, that, those kind of get to the point where uh, they're easier to, to see. You, you can kind of smell a wolf. Uh, from a distance. And one of the wonderful things we have here is we have a wonderful tradition that in many ways protects us from a wolf sneaking in to the church. We have a confession of faith. We do interviews for people before they can join with the church. There is an extensive process for to become a, a pastor, and it takes years to become a pastor. So that kind of keeps the wolves at bay. The biggest problem, the probably the biggest oppressor, is to coin a phrase from to uh, Winston Churchill, sheep in sheep's clothing. That is when the church is acting like the world as opposed to the world acting like a church with the wolves in uh, sheep's clothing. And that is that when, when, when the church, the members of the church, are, become consumer-oriented. They're bitter, they're selfish, they're greedy, they gossip. Uh, they forget the Great Commission and the reason for the existence of the church and they think it all has to do with their little preferences and just little jabs and complaints about the hymn that was sung, or how come the coffee doesn't taste better, or what about the lighting, or whatever it might be. And that pastor can't do this, and that pastor could do that, and went and he shaved his beard without telling anybody, you know, that sort of thing, kind of a shocking... I'm depressed over that. <laughs> I looked in the mirror and I thought, my neck had a baby. I mean, it's <laughs> just... <laughs> All right, now, see, I've said it, you can't pick on me now that I've put it out there. That's kind of one of the, the rules here. So, but that is, that is the little gnawing sheeps-and sheep clothings, the weak Christian that wears down most pastors. And I, I hang out with worn-out pastors. I know this to be true. Here's the, you don't want to be any of those. You want to be a sheep with a taste for wolf. You want to be a sheep that teaches other people how to be a ram, right? So we all need to work on these things. We want to make sure that we're not one of these depressors. I need to make a little bit of qualifier, too, because we're talking about the topic of depression. There is What Paul is going through it would be a spiritual kind of depression. He is concerned for the concern of others, Uh, It is a depression that comes through the pain of ministry. Uh, And uh, we've all experienced these kind of things. Parents who are depressed because of something that their children are going through, whatever. But there are depressors, and there are often depressors in your life that are actually your own fault. And you need to be honest with it, and you need to let other people be honest with you. There's a lot of depressors that are, in fact, your, your fault. Now, we understand we all don't have the same level of dopamine. We all understand we all get tired. You know, we need a rest. That kind. Just look at a kid. You know, a kid's about to have a, a temper tantrum because they, they need a nap. You know, we understand those kind of things. But there's other things that, are, that, that, that create a problem. So we don't want to baptize our self-pitying depression and attribute it to ministry. We don't want to go around feeling all bad about ourselves and all woe is me and then, and then act like we're some sort of martyr for the because You're not. You're not. It's actually probably because of Sun Sim in your life. Uh, but there's several reasons for depressions. But what you want to do is you want to get rid of the first to make sure it's not of your own uh, to, and, uh, before you do anything else. Oswald Chambers, y'all know I love Oswald Chambers, but I think he had one of the most profound statements here. He said, dejection springs from one or two sources. Either I have satisfied a lust or I have not satisfied a lust. I've either satisfied a lust or I've either not satisfied a lust. Think about the last time you were really down. It's because you satisfied a lust and you feel the guilt and the shame and the remorse and the alienation because of it or because you are groaning to satisfy a lust and you can't and you're bitter and you're jealous and you're envious and you, why can't you buy you like everybody else and why can't you have his bank account and why can't you have his car and that kind of thing. Y'all, we just need to grow out of that kind of stuff. That will make us miserable and, frankly, useless because our focus is so upon ourselves. I came across a wonderful illustration of Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther, bigger than life. He certainly had his issues. But there's a wonderful, uh, uh, he would go through fits of depression, even to the point where the rest of the family would hide sharp objects because they were afraid he would hurt himself. He was at that depth of, of depression at times. And Katrina, Katrina, his wife, she was like an alpha queen. I mean, she was, she was like a female Luther. She was strong. And Luther was sitting, you know, when you get depressed, you always remove yourself. He's sitting in the dark in the room, hadn't talked to anybody, was moping around. Katrina enters his dressing room one day wearing mourning clothes as if some, you know, going to a funeral. And it startled Luther and he and he looked up and he said, Who died? And she said, she said, No one, but from the way you're acting, I thought God might have died. I'm guessing that kind of slapped Luther out of his self-pity at the time. So mark that one off first. Make sure this isn't because of a lust satisfied or a lust unsatisfied. But then you're gonna have legitimate depressions that come because life is hard and we live in a fallen world. And there are even times where God will allow you to go through a period of what the mystics used to call the dark night of the soul, which can be at times depressing. So that we want to look at how Paul handles this and what happened here with the Corinthian church. So now we see that there's comfort through others in verses 6 through 7. But God who comforts the depressed, that's a promise for you, God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which, with which he was comforted in you. As he reported to us your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I may, receive, uh, may, may rejoice even more. So here you got this great transition. Paul has written all so far, wondering what the Corinthian church was going to do. And then Titus shows up. And Titus shows up with amazing news. And he comes up and he tells them, you're not going to believe it. They received your letter. They they love you and they are ready to obey. Paul is just celebrating at this point in time. But notice this. he, He gives the credit to God. But God who comforts the depressed comforted us by the coming of Titus. You have got... To the extent that you will embrace the providence of God is the extent that you will have joy in this life. And Titus... Paul saw Titus as the instrument of God to come and bring him comfort. The Holy Spirit himself is considered the comforter, but also so was Titus here. Here's one lesson is you need Titus's in your life. Paul invested days, hours, years in the life of discipling Titus, and now Titus has returned the blessing. He was faithful to go to the Corinthians. He's faithful to return to Paul with the good news and tell him what's going on. When you are depressed, you often isolate yourself and you don't build into young people. People come to a church and they say, well, that church is so unfriendly. I'm going to ask, how many people have you had in your house? How many people have you had to lunch? How many times have you gone to Sunday school? Do you ever stay for the meals afterwards? Do you invite people to church? You know, We all expect everybody to serve us, but we're not willing to serve others. Paul invested his life in Titus and now Titus is coming back and, and returning that wonderful, wonderful uh, blessing uh, to him. But, it, but, but it, it, it cost a lot, didn't it? It cost a lot in terms of relational pain, time, inconvenience. I think about last, uh, last weekend, there were ladies in our church that literally hosted a baby shower, brought food for a funeral, and then bought food for a covered dish meal. Three different meals they were cooked, three different types of casseroles or whatever. Uh, and and th- that's effort but what comfort it brought in each one of those situations. Elder Cox and I went uh, had lunch with a, a, a family that's thinking about joining the church, and Elder Cox was talking about spiritual gifts and the importance of serving in the church. And the lady said, you know what I love to do? I love to cook, cook meals for other people. We've been doing meals for wheels for years, and you know, we, we just love to be able to bring food and bless people with food. Elder Cox said, that is a remarkable coincidence because I have the spiritual gift of receiving hospitality. <laughs> this is providential, you know. And uh, But food speaks, right? But it takes a lot of effort, a lot of effort. We want people to make effort towards us, but we don't want to make effort towards them. There was effort here because part of it is when you're depressed, your tendency... At, at, I know more about men than I do women. Women tend to be more social, but we just want to withdraw. There's probably not a man in this room that at some point in time hadn't just thought, I just want to go to that cabin in the woods and never see another human being as long as I live. Y'all, the world will never be reached for Christ if that's our attitude. And you will never be a Titus to bless a Paul if that's your attitude there's none of us are called to be monks we are to be in the community of the people of god this is one of the importance uh, for home group ministry I, i'm just beside myself home groups are sort of new for us i think we started them three years ago and um nancy and i have opportunity to go to different home groups uh we're often asked to not come back so we go to another one and uh And we were at a home group a couple of weeks ago, and the folks were just going around just talking about how much the home group meant to them and how much the Christmas party just bonded them together. And they were emotional about this. And they are experiencing real community. You're probably not going to experience that by just coming to church on Sunday morning. This is not the place to build relationships. It's a place to worship the Lord. He's going to be the focus. But you, 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 in a home group, you really get to know each other. You serve one another. You get to know each other's children. You get to know your prayers. You get to know what you're going through. And we all need to be involved with the home group. Probably less than half, most churches that have home groups, 40% is a good number. And I understand, listen, I understand there's maybe legitimate reasons for travel at night and things like that, but... But we got five homebrews. you got lots of options on which, which one to go to. And we're about to need to make a couple of more. You're just not going to be a Titus. You're not going to be a Paul until you involve yourselves with others. This is part of the, the point here. Teresa Alvia was, uh, I think she started the Carmelite order. She was a medieval mystic. She said, Christ has no body now on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. So God is the one who comforts the depressed. Paul may be referring here to Isaiah 49 here, and this is a wonderful passage It uh, talks about the providence of God and yet the self-pity of God's people. Listen to this. Uh, Shout for joy. I'm beginning verse 14 of Isaiah 49. Shout for joy, O heavens, and rejoice, O earth. Break forth into joyful shouting, O mountains, for the Lord has comforted his people and has had compassion on his afflicted. That's pretty good news, isn't it? I mean, that's, like, that's cheerleader stuff, right? Oh, we ought to be celebrating. Look how wonderful God is. But Zion said, but Israel, but the church said, the Lord has forsaken me and the Lord has forgotten me. And then God says, can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Man, that's powerful. Notice what Zion says. Oh, oh, the Lord's forsaken me. He's forgotten me. Isn't that the, if you're, those of us who are experts on this, (laughs) that self-pitying depression, isn't that the first thing that comes to mind? God is not so good. Oh, he says he's good. He says he cares for me, but look what he's putting in my life. This is a reaction that God has. He says, listen. I will not forget you. A a, a woman cannot forget her nursing child. It it actually, if she does, it actually physically hurts her. I've written you on the palms of my hands. Do not fall into that sort of blasphemous self-pity where you question the goodness of God. You're going to do it. It's what Eve did. It's what Adam did but you will increase your misery and you'll frankly be worthless for anybody else. You put that in check as soon as your spirit or the devil starts questioning the goodness of God. Whatever hellish experience you're going through, that is in the hand of providence. He has not forgotten you. That is part of his design to make you into the image of Christ. And those of us who've been beat down enough times, you kind of start getting that after a time. And you actually see there's refreshment and comfort even in the midst of the trial. So there's three characteristics the Corinthians affirmed their love towards Paul where Titus gave this report. here. First of all, they, 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 he talked about their, your longing. They want to reestablish a relationship with Paul. Uh, there's a mourning here. They're saddened over the fact that they caused Paul so much pain here. And then there's a zeal for Paul. I love this definition of zeal that I came across. It's a combination of two equally strong emotions, love and hate. Think about that. That's what zeal is. It's a combination of love and hate. Uh, it's a strong love that hates anything that would harm its object. I think about all these sweet Christian women around here. You threaten their children, that's going to be a mama bear that's going to take your head off, Right? That's zeal, love and hate. I hate anything that's going to harm this good. That's the way we need to be. We need to love the church, and we need to defend it with our lives. There's a wonderful illustration. Um, y'all see Master and Commander? It's in my top five b- best movies of all time. I'm going through the Patrick O'Brien books now, so you're going to get lots of Napoleonic War naval illustrations for the next few years. Uh there's a, he talks about this scene where Nelson, of course, the hero of Trafalgar, uh, was on the, uh, the fore, foredeck of a, of a ship of the line, and it was cold. And a and, and, uh, uh, midshipman came up to him and said, Sir, can we bring you your cloak? It's cold. And he says, No, thank you. My love for king and country keeps me warm. <laughs> He's just like, wouldn't you love if you'd said that? <laughs> My love for king and country. That's zeal. My love for king and country. He's on a warship. His hatred of the French and his love for the British kept him warm. This is the kind of zeal that the Corinthians now have for for Paul. So he goes goes on to say that he rejoiced uh, even more uh, and that he has reported your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. This is the big turning point of the letter here. Now we see here that comfort through the Corinthians, verses 8 through 13a. For though I caused you sorrow in my letter, referring back to this this letter that's lost to us, this letter of rebuke, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. He's struggling with the emotions. He doesn't want to upset anybody, but it was necessary. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you are made sorrowful according to the will of God, so that you may not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. For behold, what earnestness this very thing, this godly sorrow has produced in you, what vindication of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what avenging of wrong! and everything you demonstrated yourself to be innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the offender, nor for the sake of the one offended, but that your earnestness on my behalf might be made known to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we have been comforted. Well, it's just amazing the emotion that he, that he writes down here. So he's going back to this sorrowful letter. You'll remember that in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 4. For out of much affliction and anguish of heart I wrote to you with many tears, not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which we have especially for you. He, wrote, he disciplined them. You know, this is one of the problems that a pastor has. If a pastor is a truth teller, and he understands the importance of church discipline, he is going to upset people who want to have their ears tickled. And they're going to kill the messenger because they can't get to God, so they're going to kill the messenger. And yet, if you pull the punch, if you withhold, you're not really showing love, are you? Proverbs 13, 24 says this, He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. It is unloving to spoil a child. It is unloving to wink at sin. I mean, use discretion. You don't point out everything. You'll wear everybody down in yourself, and you'll be a prig. But you've got to point out, there is a place for being able to point out areas that people need to work on. This is what Paul did, and he was afraid that he had lost everything, that they weren't going to, uh, they weren't willing to repent. So there are appropriate and even necessary times for a strong rebu- re- rebuke, and yet he's emotionally, he's in turmoil because he, he kind of regrets it, but he knew it was necessary, and he wasn't quite sure what to do. You know, it's like, uh, I, I saw the, I guess so when I was a kid, it might have been spanking in the gang, to be honest with you. You know, it took me a while to start reading novels. Uh, but there was a, a father was disciplining his child, he was going to spank him. And he says, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. You know that line? Well, no kid ever believes that, right? Until they become a parent. Until they become a parent. And this is kind of what Paul is going through. He talks about the sorrow of the world, the two different kind of sorrows here. Y'all, this is absolutely essential. This will help you push through your depression, let me talk to you about the two different sorrows. There's a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow, and I want to give you some definitions here that, uh, that I came across. A worldly sorrow can be intense but cannot be distinguished from sin. The focus is on self, and the sorrow is often due to pain caused by the sin of the individual. Often leads to self-pitying and bitterness and repentance. is often motivated by saving face and your reputation if it comes at all. Sin costs... Sin always brings death, and it can bring death of relationship. Even the culture recognizes that. There's a certain morality even within our culture. And there is a regret that comes, but it's not a repenting type of regret. It's a regret for being caught, being made to look foolish, to end up creating a scandal, to alienate relationships and things like that. But when that doesn't actually bring out repentance the kind of things that we're seeing in the Corinthians, that's a worldly sorrow. Who's a great example of that? Well, there's a number in uh, Scripture. Judas is one, right? I mean, he was to the point of sorrow of committing suicide, and yet he really didn't repent. Probably one of the best examples is Esau. Hebrews 12 says, "...for you know that even afterwards he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, and he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears." He missed that blessing, and he was really upset, but he wasn't going to be a God follower. The sorrow of the world uh, includes remorse, wounded pride, self-pity, fulfilled hope, unfulfilled hopes. It has no healing power, no transforming, saving, or redeeming capability. It produces guilt, shame, resentment, anguish, despair, depression, hopelessness, even as in the case, again, of Judas. But what about godly sorrow? Godly sorrow is from God is focused on a desire to obey and to regret sin that has dishonored God and hurts others. It leads to repentance and greater obedience, and eventually, it leads to joy. There's a productivity in godly sorrow. We might have just, when we had our confession, uh, our silent confession, which we have in most services. Part of that is to bring about this godly sorrow. It, it, it is, it is, uh, it's like water on a withered plant. And it's bonding. I mean, I can think about times raising four children, that there were times and they were generally sorrowful that they, that they hurt us and that they caused um, disharmony within the family and, and that kind of thing. And those are tender, tender times. It's the same thing when we go to our Lord and confess our, our sins. A great example of this is David when he's repented from his sins with Bathsheba. Nathan goes and rebukes him. You know, David could have just killed Nathan. Nathan goes and gives this story about the rich man who eats the guy's lamb and that kind of thing. I really ruined that story. Sorry, go back and read it. I don't have time to go through the whole thing. But Nathan basically comes up and and rebukes David, right? David had the authority to kill Nathan if he wanted to. It would have been sin, but he could have done it. There's no shortage of tyrants in the world. What does David say? I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against the Lord. You read his Psalms and you can see how he kept that sin and wouldn't repent and how it just was a burning within him. So the Corinthians have a genuine sorrow as evidenced by uh, the repentance that they showed and that evidence is seen in Paul's use of the word what here. There's seven different what's here. Paul is just on a roll right here. What earnestness, this very thing, this godly sorrow. He, there's an eagerness for righteousness. What vindication of yourselves. They want, their, they want to get rid of that name of the bad reputation they have as the troubled church. What indignation. There's anger and outrage over sin. You, you, God has given us anger. Anger is a gift. If we didn't have anger, we would not have won World War II. If we didn't have anger, we wouldn't accomplish a lot of things. And given in a proper way, anger can make you repent. You don't want to sin anymore. While you're being angry at everybody else, be angry at yourself for your own sin. That's actually productive. What fear. They, when they live before the face of God. They realize they've blown it. What longing. There's a desire for rest of relationship, relationship. What zeal. There's our zeal love again. They want to oppose the things that attack love, and they want to show love. What avenging of wrong. They desire justice and, and restitution. And the summary is, in everything you demonstrate yourself to be innocent in this matter, okay? And, you know, essentially the Apostle John, you can see some of what Paul is talking about here in his relationship with his churches. Uh, John 3 says, I was very glad, uh, John 3, 3, 3rd John 3 uh, through 4, <laughs> I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you're walking. I have no greater joy than this, to hear my children walking in the truth. And it's interesting, Paul, he wasn't just upset because I wasted all this time with the Corinthians. He was really burdened for them. Isn't that the way you parents and your grandparents are with your children? You know, you, you look at them going down this road, going down this line of thought, going down and doing these stupid things, and you think this is going to lead to hurt. It's going to lead to alienation. It's going to lead to an emergency room visit, All right, Paul was concerned, he says, I would make you sorrowful according to the will of God that you may not suffer loss in anything. Suffer loss in anything. If you kind of want to know what that means, it could be loss of you know, worldly things, but go back, remember our teaching in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that we went, referred back to a few weeks ago. We talked about the building upon uh, the ministry, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work is built on remains, he will receive, there's our word, he will receive our reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. The same term that Paul used here but he himself will be saved. This is that, again, John says the same thing. Watch yourselves that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full award. Here's that principle, folks. Mediocre, lukewarm Christians, if they're generally Christians, they will be saved, but they will not receive a reward. They will stand before the Lord in judgment, But they would have so squandered their opportunities, so wasted their life, pulled a no-show on everything, that they will be saved, but they will not receive reward. Those who take Scripture seriously, those who commit themselves to walking with the Lord, those who walk in repentance, those who serve others, those who show love, love, those who contribute, those who volunteer, you just fill in the blank. They will receive a reward. What is the reward? I don't know. Ask Jack when he comes back. Maybe he... I, I don't know. It may have something to do with the parable of the talents. You know, the man who buried his talent was condemned. The ones who invested in what the Lord had given him was praised. I, I don't know. But I know this. The principle is, throughout Scripture, that there is going to be a point in time when every one of you, every one of you are going to stand before the Lord when you die, and there's going to be either a ward... Or an absence of reward. You can't lose your salvation. If you're a Christian, you will be saved. What does heaven look like if you go there without a reward? I don't know. I don't know. But it's important enough for Paul and John to warn us about it. So, y'all, we just need a little wake-up call. Time is short. Are you going to be like the Corinthians, living a longing, a zeal, a vindication, a, 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 an indignation against sin, a desire for community and righteousness. If you do, if you are focusing on God and focusing on others, you ain't got time to think about yourself and how depressed you are all the time. That's really part of our problem. I was thinking, um, you know, we're all, everything, everybody's so into appearance now. When we go on Instagram, we go on uh, heaven forbid, TikTok, or uh, uh, all these other ones. And, you know, you we just never seem to measure up. You know, there's always someone who's more attractive or whatever. Why don't you go on a site with handicapped children? Children with hair lips. Why don't you go on a site where children have been burned? Why don't you go on a site with crippled children? I, I, I've never worked with special needs children, but it seems to me that people who do... They have a special joy and I think it's because they are around hurting broken people all day long and they realize how blessed they are. That's part of it. The other part is is they're just so busy trying to help somebody else they're not going to sit there and get into all this self-pity. The church is that for you. It gives you this opportunity. Let's go on uh, to uh, the the comfort for the sake of others verses 13 through 16 and and kind of roll things up here. And besides our comfort... We rejoiced even much more than the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. So they've blessed Titus as well. For in, in, for if anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as he spoke all things to you in truth, so also our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. His affection abounds all the more towards you as he remembers the obedience of all of you how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice in everything I have because uh, I have confidence in you. Notice this, that Paul is rejoicing because Titus is rejoicing. And it goes back to that principle in Romans, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I, I love when people are sharing prayer requests. Sometimes it'll be someone no one else knows and everything, but they're rejoicing or they're weeping in s- with somebody else's success, or, or difficulties. We should so associate ourselves that when someone else is sad, we're sad. When somebody else is rejoicing, we're rejoicing. It's easier to be sad for somebody else than it is to rejoice with somebody else. Because almost the first thing, somebody, somebody gets a new car, say an orange Prius, uh, and we're just like, we're rejoicing for that orange Prius. Actually, we're like, why in the world would you buy an orange Prius? But we're, we're all excited. But then immediately we think, whoa, I wish I could have a new car. Am I describing Truth to you here? Stay with the rejoicing. God is not lo- overlooking you and blessing him. He's got your name written on the palm of his hand. Now, you know, one of the questions I had as I'm going through this, Paul, you can just read. We've been going through 2 Corinthians for months now. Can't you just feel the pain of the Apostle Paul as he's writing this to Corinthians? Now, this is, this is God's number one man. And Paul is just in pain with the Corinthian church. And then all of a sudden, Titus shows up and the whole letter switches. Why didn't didn't Paul let Titus show up in chapter 1? Could you imagine what the church, what life would be like if we didn't have chapters 1 through 7 of 2 Corinthians? God was holding Titus back in order to give us this letter. And in that same way, God has got a reason for absolutely everything that happens to you. And it's for the good of the church, and it's for God's own glory. They received him with fear and trembling, and he is rejoicing in that. Just real quick, I want to just kind of help you again with this idea of overcoming depression. Kind of, You want to rule out the self-centered type depression, the, the lust satisfied or the lust not. But I still think that the, on the positive standpoint, Part of the problem is perspective. We tend to be inward. We tend to be horizontal. Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 through 2, and the Psalms are full of this, and I won't go through all that. I don't want to go too long. I don't want to go too much longer. If you have been raised up with Christ, in other words, you're a Christian, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth. That really That is the the thing that will set you back into joy uh, or settled happiness that will keep you out of the pits of despair. Just keep seeking the things above. You can't do that if you're by yourself. You can't do that if you neglect worship. You can't do that if you're not reading your Bible at home and you're not filling yourself with good truth. So Paul's going to go on. He's going to move on to discussion about the need need in uh, Jerusalem and taking up a collection, chapters 8 and 9. And then he's going to kind of redress some... uh, some of the other issues that are still happening in the Corinthian church in chapters 10 through 13. But he closes this entire passage with this, I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. As messed up as they are, he sees that seed of repentance and he's saying, I've got confidence in you. You are going to be my showcase church because you've proven yourself not to be perfect, but to be repentant. I think about Psalm 34. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and save those who are crushed in spirit. Many of the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. The Apostle Paul would, would yell a loud amen to that psalm. My hope is that you will as well. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you, God, for helping us to sort through the complexities and the difficulties of living in this fallen world. Uh, Help us to be discerning. Help us to be others-oriented and just to get our eyes off ourselves. The whole culture wants us just to be focused on ourselves. Help us to fight the culture and to be the church of the living God. Let us not lose our reward. And help us to remember that our God comforts the depressed. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you.